Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Harry Myrie. After his time studying at the Berklee College of Music, Harry moved to Nashville, where he's been for the last five years. During that time, he's built an impressive resume working with different artists such as Low Cash and Claire Bowen, the singer and actress from the TV show Nashville. Many people know Harry through his YouTube page where he showcases such things like open-handed drumming, tips on how to sound like Travis Barker or Carter Beaufort, or even a video dedicated to exposing the true financial life of a side musician. Harry is always engaging and entertaining in his approach, and it's easy to see and hear why he he has close to 60,000 subscribers. Harry currently plays drums for Ryan Falaze, former frontman for Hot Shell Ray. In addition, Harry is currently preparing for a busy summer of touring with country artist Troy Cartwright and indie rock band Sons of Bill. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done over the last three years, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really helps us grow. I want to do a quick shout out to all the listeners that participated in our donation drive for the month of May. We had a lot of companies participate in that to give away prizes. We had uh, stuff from Crush Drums, Aquarian Drumheads, Vader Drumsticks, Session Ace. We had a pair of uh, in-ears and a book from Jake Brown, Beyond the Beats, Rock's Greatest Drummers. So uh, congratulations to all our winners, and uh, we thank you again so much for participating in that. A lot of us are using in-ear monitors on a more regular basis than we could have anticipated even just a few years ago. Unless you have that big artist gig that provides all the free gear that you need to do your job, you are responsible for the cost of your own in-ears, and the price is often too high for great-sounding in-ears. Session Ace is a company that makes great-sounding ears at a very reasonable price. Zach and I have been putting these in-ears to the test in real-world settings for many months, I can honestly say these are the best-sounding in-ears I've used. For only $199, you can own a set of ESAs or quad driver headphones. For the dual drivers or ESTs, it's only $99. The frequency response is better than any of the lower-level competitor products and is either equal to or better than other higher-end products. And lastly, the accessory package that comes with every order has everything you would possibly need from cable extensions, adapters, as well as a large assortment of ear tips to fit your ear. You can check all these out at sessionace.com slash working drummer and see some of the other products that they have to offer. So here's my conversation with Harry Myrie. When I first moved here, mm-hmm. the first dude I met, where's the first place I went when I pulled into town? I picked up a bunch of hardware at Guitar Center and the guy working in the warehouse gave me all my gear I was going to use here. And he told me, yeah, I'm a drummer. I've moved here like six or seven years ago, still looking for the gig. I said, cool, where can I hear you play? Like, are you playing around or can I look you up online? He's like, nah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm still getting that together. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. next place I went was some coffee shop guy behind the counter. Yeah, man, I just moved here from Chicago like three or four years ago, still looking for the gig. I say, great, where can I hear you play? Same answer. And I thought like, dude, I don't want to suffer the same fate. I want to be able to control the uh, like the end user experience of people being able to hear and see and feel my playing mm-hmm. beyond like iPhone videos filmed from the nosebleeds from my band. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 
I had also learned from being in a band before I moved here that nothing, nothing we ever did really meant anything until we started harnessing the power of YouTube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like there were a million people just waiting to be entertained sitting mm-hmm. there, man. I mean, yeah. uh, and I had prior to being in that band, like I thought the only success I had ever had with music was like having a song that made it to the front page of MySpace. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as soon as I realized like how, how much more deeply engaging video is, I thought I should get comfy with this man. And I think early on in the podcast, people said you should do YouTube and I, I, we tried it briefly, but the production and everything, this is a different kind of format, the audio. So I, after I showed my friend and tech guy, Mike, some of your videos, he's like, maybe we need to revisit this. Oh, dude. Wow. Uh, well, I couldn't imagine not, uh, just listening to working drummer podcast though. I haven't said this to you yet, by the way, like this podcast has been like the soundtrack to my life for the last three years. Um, And, uh, I remember like when I was driving myself to my own gigs and in 2015, like listening to some of these episodes on repeat thinking like, wow, I wonder one day if I'll like ever meet any of these people. I tell you what, man, though, there's so many things that people are doing that are, I mean, more important than I think they realize in creating opportunities for us to make a living. And it's, it's all important. And I hate to call them out, but growing up reading Modern Drummer, I was reading about the same handful of players and I wanted to know more about those that were like me and had similar goals and visions of how we wanted to live our lives and um, and they were my peers and luckily for me in being in Nashville I mean obviously we've expanded our uh, guests and outside of Nashville but it's uh it's so easy to, to pull from local talent to find out what they're doing and how it relates to everybody anywhere, what they want to do. Especially with what you're doing, because now you're reaching tons of people, you know. Dude, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate what you're doing here, because the dudes that work here aren't necessarily the type that are going to get a lot of attention in Modern Drummer, mm-hmm. but I'm way more interested in what they have to say. I, I mean, you picked the right name for this podcast, Working Drummer, man. Like, Ooh. these are the people I want to hear from. Yeah. <laughs> but enough about me. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. This is the part that I edit out. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, uh, like, for somebody that wants to, to, to do the videos like you've done, give us an idea of, like, how much goes into it. Is there a script that you write? Uh, how long does it take? The editing is a big part of it, mm-hmm. which I think is fun, the fun part, but... How much time is involved and what, what goes oh, into yeah. that? That's, that's, a, uh, that's an ever-changing relationship for me. But when I started in 2014, the deal I made with myself is mm-hmm. no matter what, I'm putting one out every Monday. And the reason I felt I was able to do that is Nashville touring was so different from any touring I had done before. It's like we only ever really played Friday, Saturday, maybe Thursday. Yeah, And I'd be sitting in my house Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know anybody here. You know, I didn't have anything better to do. So mm-hmm. uh, so I thought, all right, I'll make a new video every Monday in 2014. And I think I made it into June at that pace. And what I learned the hard way from that is that is not enough time to make a good video. 
You know what I mean? Like, I guess with iPhones, we can make a, a video every hour of the day if we wanted to, right, but like right. that doesn't make them good. So, um, I'm, I'm thankful that I got all that out of the way so I could like learn what translates, learn what resonates with me after 16 hours of working on something. Yeah. What still feels like it's what I had in my head in the beginning. So, yeah. but a lot of those you, you I've taken down since then. So okay. not, not many videos survived that year okay because because i rushed them so now the main this is like this is a good complaint to get from people but the main complaint i get from people now is like dude why does it take you three months to put out a video and there are two reasons for that one is i'm touring a lot more now yeah um the other is i don't want it coming out until it's like really until i'm really like behind it Mm -hmm. and so yeah like you mentioned uh I, I don't even want to start shooting until like the script is. I do script them because, as you know now from talking to me in real life, I I'm like a stuttery dude. I have a, <laughs> I have like a below average abilities at putting basic sentences together. You know what I mean? So, but I don't mind taking three days of taking three days worth of downtime to just kind of poke at a script about a cajon and what bugs me about how they're being used in yeah. pop music or something. You know what I mean? And uh, it, I think it benefits him a lot of times for me to poke at it a little bit, go out on the road, play some acoustic gigs, and realize, you know, some of the lines from that video come from shows I played in the process of writing that thing and seeing, like, oh, look, they got they brought the guy playing a participation box, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I remember that phrase, like, specifically sticking in my head from one of those runs. Uh, they actually said that, participation box. I, the guy, the snarky guitar player next to me said like, oh, look, the singer brought her little brother and he's playing on a participation box. And I thought, oh, that is exactly what that is in this context. Yeah. One thing I got to point out about that video is that like, that I really did a not very good job of acknowledging is that there are people in the world who make beautiful music on cajones. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, I think you, you, you touched upon that at the beginning. Look, if this is what you do, this is your jam, then I get it. Right. My yeah. So well, I, I'm glad that that translated. My my beef, of course, is trying to play like giant. Uh, who's the fellow that produces the Florida Georgia Line records? The that doesn't yeah. really um, uh, translate on a cajon, right? No, right. And that, I have one here actually. Do you want to? Nice. Well, yeah, man. Play me a solo. <laughs> actually, it's not even mine. <laughs> no, it's okay. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> I had one for a second, but but when I worked at Forks. I was able to come across all the stuff that Pearl makes to convert the f- floor toms. So when I saw your video, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I've had to do. And, and here's my solution. Here's what's worked is people say, hey, so we have this acoustic gig. Uh, do you have a cajon? Because I think that's right where they go because they've heard people use that. And we all know singer-songwriters and other musicians and agents and managers who just have this disconnect with drums, drummers, percussion. So they just repeat things they've heard or seen. And we have to gently educate them on what sounds cool and what we do. And like you said in the video, and I'm right right there with you. The other thing about it is I'm just not good at it. You know, it's hard to get to, and there are, there are players out there that are awesome at it. So when somebody says to me, hey, do you have a cone? Can we do this? I'll say, 
I don't, even though I, this is Mike's, it's here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could, I have access to one. Yeah, man. I say I don't, but I've got something better, and it takes up the same amount of space, and it'll sound amazing. And a lot of times, I don't even have to say anything more than that, and they're like, oh, cool, yeah, bring that. Preach, man. Yeah, dude, and dude. It's, sometimes it's that floor tom and snare. Sometimes yeah. I add a hi-hat. It, it's gotten as crazy as a 13-inch floor tom mm-hmm. next to it. You know? Oh, yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah, space permitting. Well, good, man. I mean, keep spreading uh, real acoustic drums into acoustic gigs, man. Keep on fighting the good fight. Some of the crappiest videos I've made in terms of production quality are the ones that have resonated with people the most. And that that's taught me the great lesson of, and, and vice versa applies too. Like I've put a lot of production effort into some of these videos and they're my least viewed, least talked about videos because like people, uh, people don't see those things when they watch videos. They see like the person playing or talking mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what they connect with or don't connect with mm-hmm. man. So, mm-hmm. um, Gosh, I hate sounding as vague as I sound right now, but it's not. No, it's not at all. I, I think that the important thing is is connecting and finding a way to connect. If it's if it's spending more time facing the camera and um, talking about things that people want to hear, and it, through experimentation, you helped. Uh, you made that clear talking about like all the videos you did in 2014 and how that, that that had to be a rite of passage to get to making the videos you're making now. For sure, man. Yeah. Uh, I must say, in the beginning, here's, here's the other thing that sticks to me that I still haven't gotten to the bottom of, is when I first started making these videos, I was positive that uh, 100% of my subscribers would watch me playing the drums everybody would be interested in that and then the little talking videos that i would sometimes put out in conjunction Uh maybe 10 percent, some smaller subset would watch those and be like oh well there's there are the extra insights about whatever they were at the time you know playing an odd time or um here's here's carter bovard's operating system or yeah here's how money works and all these little yeah, yeah those have ended up being the things that people watch the most and i i feel especially reluctant to like preach that rambling videos like that are important to make. I I can't, um, to me, like the most important stuff I make is still just me playing the drums, you know, like that was even, even though those are rarely the ones that take off. Um, but if I, you know, if, if like, if the core of your question is what should my fellow drummers be thinking about if they want to make videos like, uh, the thing that feels most important to me of all that is uh, take as long as you need uh, to translate what it feels like and sounds like for you to play drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, just keep chipping away at that until you have a video that's like, cool. Yeah. Uh, this is Matt on the drums. This is what it feels like. It sounds yeah. like, you know what I mean? Because sometimes that's your business card. Oh, for sure, man. You know, for yeah. people to say, hey, here's. Here's Harry. Have you heard? No, I haven't. Oh, here. Check it out. Dude. Pull it up on your phone. Boom. Oh, cool. Get him. Dude, definitely. I could not have predicted how often I was going to end up in that scenario. Mm-hmm. I just thought it would be something from my back pocket. Like, if you need that extra bit of convincing, here's some footage of me playing. Yeah. That's not like through an iPhone at some arena three years ago or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, 
damn i mean i uh yeah making some of those videos has like changed my gigging life some of the bigger gigs i've done here i'm i'm like almost embarrassed to admit it because i know the way it's supposed to work is like your well-respected friend is supposed to throw your name in the hat and then Mm -hmm. just on like the good name that you've built for yourself here you're supposed to go climb the ladder that way and um i a handful of the biggest auditions i've like stumbled into since i've lived in nashville like have just been some tour manager typing in nashville drummer into youtube or something and my face being the first wow and i'm almost embarrassed by that but i wouldn't be um (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't be, man, if you can deliver and you show up and I know you, you even mentioned in your financial video, which was amazing, talking breaking you. down the, the, the money situation. You said, here's an audition, didn't make it. Here's an audition, didn't make And I, you know what, it, what, what resonated with me is, is not only is the honesty in which you come across and like, Here's the things that I do well. Here's some of the things that I did not succeed at. I failed, but I here's what I learned from that. Uh, Scott Corey, one of the guys that's been on this podcast, he's always like, every time I fail, it's an opportunity to learn. Which, at the time when he said that to me, I had like three things fall apart that week. And I was like, thank you, Scott. Yeah, man. I needed that. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that you're delivering that I'm watching and I'm going, why didn't I know that when I was his age? Oh, you know, and I think that we discussed this many times, the opportunity for young people to learn how to play, how to navigate the business is so much more transparent now. And there's sometimes pushback towards, well, you need a real teacher, then about this, you know, it's there some things you can't learn just from YouTube, there's things that you have to experience. And I agree with all that. But I'm seeing so much potential growth in the way we conduct business, like people finding you and getting you on audition and then you doing the audition and getting the gig and then going out and touring and proving yourself. It's all people really want. Mm-hmm. So make it happen. Um, and, and learning their instrument. My, my son just picked up guitar and he's, he was playing Blackbird for me last week. The 13 or the 16 year old? The 13 year old. Nice. That's and, such a great time to get into that. Yeah. And I'm like, I do we need a teacher mm. probably at some point, but this has all gone down in the last month. Mm. And he's doing this stuff and he's playing this. So I know you, I mean you mentioned there's this a tradition and and it's called the good old boy system. <laughs> and that's, that's a great way of putting that. Yeah, it, that's what I that's the terminology I heard when I first moved here. Mm-hmm. And man, <laughs> shake that shit up. <laughs> Man, I it almost has played to my advantage here that at no point in my life have I ever been like in the cool kids club. Uh, in fact, that right now is the first time in my life I feel that I that I'm even like accepted by those types because there are clicks here too, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I feel uh, I feel embraced here among drummers. I re- I don't try to take up anybody's time, but it's nice to uh, 
uh, it's nice to feel like people are happy to see me and it's nice to genuinely feel happy to see people that I don't identify as like a cool kid in the drummers club here. And I never identified as like one of the cool kids, even when I was in school. Um, and I, I think that's helped me be comfy on my own and just say like, I'll do my best at the good old boys system and I'll also do best at what I feel is kind of my ticket, which yeah. ended, ended up being the video thing. Maybe that's another thing that makes me feel like I relate to you because I, I feel the same way. I was never a part of that, but uh, the podcast has been like my voice for that. And I, I it, so I, I think the takeaway maybe for anybody listening is like kind of find your voice, your ability to express yourself in a unique way that gives you that, that feeds that part of your soul. I think so much of what we do is we're a support system for the singer songwriter, the band, whatever, as a drummer. And there are many great drummers that are songwriters as well and do that. But sometimes I think there's a creative uh, component that is often missing in what we do. Uh, that has to happen outside of drumming. Um, so I think there's there's so many different ways to do it. Dude, and you are the living example of that, man. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've known you for three years. Cause <laughs> it's funny hearing your voice in real life because I've heard you through headphones for so long. You know uh, I mean? That's hilarious. So uh, so good job, man. Thank Practicing you, man. what you preach. Thank you, thank you. The, um, give us the current news. What's What's happening these days? Why couldn't you meet tomorrow? <laughs> oh, uh, tomorrow I have a session. Uh, and I also, you know, it's made the session a lot more complicated is I got them to agree to let me bring my camera guy. So you're getting the scoop. You heard it here yeah. first. Uh, the next video coming out, and God knows it'll take me forever, is uh, sort of a, a behind the scenes, an expose of how demo sessions work. Five and threes. Um, and we did the first five and three last week. And it went. The session went great. But from explain uh, five and three. Yeah. So um, they book these Nashville studio sessions. Like they, as far as my experience has gone, anyway, they work in these three-hour blocks. Mm -hmm. Like at least the Berry Hill Studios and the Music Row Studios. Yeah. And uh, uh, in that three-hour period that you get booked for, you cut five songs. In my case, they're all demos. I'd never play on masters. Occasionally, something I play on will get converted to like a limited pressing. Mm -hmm. They call those upgrades. But, uh, dude, I just play on demos all the time. Like stuff that gets traded around like baseball cards behind the scenes. And if some artist uh, like Scotty McCreary or something decides to cut it, then they'll get like the master session dudes to like do what we did better. You know what I mean? And, and the, But those guys were doing demos before as well and, and, and logging in hours of studio time. Oh, for sure. You know what? There's so much magic in demos that it's like the public is really missing out. There's some kind of uh, there's some kind of like lack of need for perfection going on in demos that makes them like a little less clean but a little more creative. You know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about? Yeah. I love listening. Uh, I if if the name pops in my head at some point while I'm sitting here with you, I'll tell you the name of the website. But there's some website I earmarked a few years ago because. Uh, they when when big hits climb up the charts, they have a way of digging up the demo and saying, "Hey, listen to this one. This was just a demo." Oh wow! And you can hear like how it was originally conceived, or maybe with more real drums on it, less programming or something. 
and it's amazing to hear like how some of these players first hear it and how they just like crap out an amazing part off the top of their heads. It's awesome to listen to. Somebody told me about Sarah Bareilles' first record, and there is a demo version floating around. And a buddy of mine's like, "It." I said, "I love that record," and he said, oh, "You should hear the demo." <laughs> yes, that is sadly so often true, man. Well, and and I think that demos have changed in Nashville so much so that they, in order for them to get noticed for the the the, the um, what's the person that the pitches the, the the song plugger? Yeah, man. The production value has gone up, so people realized maybe ten, fifteen years ago they're like, "Look, if this is a crappy song, but it production-wise sounds great, it's going to get noticed by so and so, and maybe then so and so will t- will cut it." So then everyone was like, "Oh, you're going to do that? Okay, I'm going to do that too." And it just like this competition kept raising the bar as far as production, and then all of a sudden you hear, "Yeah, that." That's actually the demo. It made it on the record. Oh yeah, uh, I love examples of that. I Stephen Wilson came one my last semester of school. The lead singer from Semisonic. I think the guy's name wow. is Stephen Wilson. That's how I know him. I know him from Closing Time. You know what I mean? Yeah. What I didn't realize is like after Semisonic ended, uh, he just started writing songs for other people, and he came in and played us his demo that he wrote with Adele of Someone Like You, and. Uh, at the end, we were all kind of looking at each other like, that doesn't sound like a demo, that sounds like the record. And he told us the story after, like, this was made in my house in an afternoon, and they said, let's put it on the record. And then it became a smash, dude. Yeah. I love stories of that, and it explains kind of the rawness of that recording, man. You know what I mean? That, that, yeah, that stuff blows my mind, man. Uh, but some of the touring that you're doing coming mm-hmm. up this summer. Yeah. Uh, dude, so... Yeah, I just kind of inked, I kind of finalized all that yesterday. So up to this point, I've been playing, my current gig is playing with Ryan Falize. Most people know him as the front man of Hot Shell Ray. And then people give me the nod of, oh, Hot Shell Ray. And then I go, la, 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 whatever, la, la, la. And they go, oh, that song. Oh, right. Um, Up to this point, I've been playing full time with him. And I just finally inked the... uh, I just kind of finally inked 2018 yesterday uh, with two other acts. One is a fellow named Troy Cartwright who just signed with Warner. He's like a baby actor with Warner now. I've um, been playing with him for a while. And the other is some indie band from Virginia. And uh, they wanted me to go out and do like half a month in Europe with them. And it just fit like a glove with the touring I'm already oh, wow. doing. That's great. And I said, I could use a free ride to Europe, especially because I have like little clinic things that I've been trying to do out there that it's hard to justify like taking an entire trip to Europe just to do something in a drum shop in Sweden or something. <laughs> but if I have a day off yeah. and we're going from like UK to Germany anyway, I'll stop in Sweden and do all that. You yeah, know what I mean? for sure. So free ride to Europe. Uh, it's gonna. I'm not going to see my house like at all this summer, but uh, this is what I came here to do, man. Exactly. Come to Nashville so you can get away from Nashville. <laughs> can you break down those three acts as far as like how they came about? Yes. Uh, Ryan Falaze, What when I was playing with Low Cash, Ryan was opening for us every night. And I, I got thrown into that Low Cash thing like overnight, basically. And mm-hmm. so the first 
the first three or four shows, I was just holed up in my bunk listening to board tapes like, oh, God, please don't ruin this for everybody. Um, taking notes and just trying to drill that stuff into my head. A, a set, a 90, we were headlining every night, and that was like a 90 that I learned on a flight, basically. Oh, wow. Um, but when I finally started like crawling out and actually living on that tour a little bit, I, yeah. I like watching our opening acts and stuff. Yeah. Because I've lived like my entire life in that slot. Uh, so I like standing side stage and watching all that. And Ryan Falaze was opening for us every night and he blew my mind, dude, his, mm. his live show. He, he's like, he's a great opener because first of all, he's got that song that everybody knows. Second of all, like just whatever he decides to do is he's just like one of those inherently entertaining humans. You know what I mean? And he knows how to wrangle a crowd and his band is just a bunch of murderers, man. I mean, they're, unbelievable players That's and great uh so i i kind of um i like i probably hung out with them more than with my own band when we were doing that <laughs> tour you know what i mean we got yeah. along like we just kind of spiritually resonated right um and then they did sam hunt's tour without a drummer interesting in and of itself and when they got back to when all that was done and, and they, sam hunt had no bass player probably at the time, <laughs> so you know they what? can probably make a band <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, by then, so Sam was doing Madison Square Garden and um, like bigger rooms for that tour. So he uh, he hired a bassist. In fact, he got the guy from Goodbye June, if you know that band. I don't. I don't. Uh, I heard that he did get a bass player finally. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, so, they're, you know, they're an orchestra now. They're a Sam Hunt orchestra. Um, <laughs> but I don't think he'll ever shake that uh, sort of funny Nashville meme of having an SPD for a bass player or whatever it was oh, for a geez. while, yeah. which I think somebody must've gotten upset about because you know, that there was like some kind of Instagram account or something called not Sam Hunt's bass player or something. Oh that, gosh, and the profile hilarious. photo was an SPD SX, a sampler made by Roland. <laughs> and somebody got upset enough that the account got banned. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I probably shouldn't be sitting here talking about it. Dude, I mean, I, I did Christmas tours in Canada, like six tours and there were a lot of tracks, and including the bass. The artist decided, because of the limited budget, to spend it on a tour bus and a driver, a lighting director, as opposed to a bass player. Mm-hmm. Not our favorite thing, <laughs> but for her audience, it worked well, and they didn't notice, and the lights were amazing, and it was a Christmas <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Sam Hunt. I feel you. You know. You know what, man? I, uh, I, I will take a big pay cut if you'll put me on a bus, man. I put, I put uh, mm. so much of a premium on my health now, and like, what do you mean? Uh, the fact that I can sleep for nine hours a night and hydrate. You know, I don't, I don't drink water. I don't want to be, be the reason like a sprinter stops, um, or a van or something. So I just don't drink water even on these long travel oh, days yeah, right. if I'm not on a bus. Yeah. But if I'm on a bus and there's a bathroom, yeah. I can drink nine gallons of water a day or however much like to feel good and I can sleep nonstop and yeah. like just take care of myself. And it's like, if I had the choice between making less money but touring on a bus or making more money to like rough it out a little bit, I'd take less money, dude. Like the, the older I get, the more I'm like just desperate to find ways to keep myself healthy. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Dude, so Father's Day was opening for us every night. He did that. He did Sam Hunt's tour without a drummer, and 
when he got back to doing his own shows and wanted uh, a full band, they we were already hanging out all the time anyway. So they they brought me in to play drums with him, uh, and that's been so good for me, dude. Just the, those guys wiping the floor with me every night, uh, just with their sheer musical ability. That's made me better at music, no doubt. That's so important. Uh, it's also been cool to be in a band where um, the players like have can take a lot of like arrangement liberties. That's one reason his live show is so cool is because they're not just reciting the record. Like they don't mind stretching out and saying, "What if yeah we do this strange chromatic lick and then drop off on the end of three, come back in on the two of the next bar or something?" Yeah, really yeah, yeah. give the vocal space there and. Ryan will just kind of look up in rehearsal and be like, all right, try it. He won't say no until he hears it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like, you know, that that's not exactly been a typical experience for me here. The first time I saw that happen in the rehearsal room, I thought like, hey, man, you're going to get fired with your weird music ideas. Shut up. You know, <laughs> but it actually goes over in that band. So that's made me better at music. Um, and that's what I've spent like maybe the last year or so doing. Uh, but the two acts that I'm going to spend my summer with this year are... Uh, Troy, who finally signed with Warner, I guess I, I think I was just helping him out on the weekends a little bit last summer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's from Texas, so he had his own band in Texas, but he, he just moved to Nashville to take his publishing deal. And um, uh, Evan Coniglio, who you know from yes. some other gig and had yeah. mentioned you to me before, said, you got to check out this guy's podcast. I said, I'm way ahead Evan's of you, Evan's been cool. Yeah, he's an, a, a bass player of all people, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see him tomorrow, actually. Right on. Yeah. Um, so uh, I met him from playing... We did Tyson Leslie's uh, sort of offshoot of Loud Jams called Rare Hair. Are you hip to this? Yeah, sure. And I went in there and had uh, was dumb enough to agree to the Slayer song that nobody else wanted. And Danny at Forks said you killed it. Uh, it killed me is the way I would describe <laughs> that. You know what? Before that, I'm really glad I did it, even though I embarrassed myself. If for no other reason, like to just have that next level of appreciation for the sheer athleticism of metal players who do that every night and then play yeah. 13 other songs right after it. Right. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so that was like an Olympic workout. Uh, Coniglio played bass on that though, mm-hmm. and I think he had just moved to town, so we just became buddies right away. And he he MDs for Troy, so um, when Troy wasn't using his Texas guys, we would uh, we'd play like kind of his Nashville routed dates. Yeah, and uh, he finally landed at Warner just now, and we have we we have a bona fide tour now, as you do. Oh, that's great. Uh, Opening for Riley Green the majority of the year, mm-hmm. you know, playing rooms the size of like Marath. I think our Nashville shows at Marathon. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like I'll bring my little twenty-inch bass drum and a floor tom and a big cymbal and uh, whatever you can break down ten minutes after the last note. You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, and somehow, all right. So that's how that came about. And the band out of Virginia is called Sons of Bill, and I think. Um, I think Jerry Rowe put them on to me. Maybe they knew Jerry. Some of them live here, but uh-huh. they're based in Charlottesville. Their, manage- their management is Red Light Charlottesville. And uh, I think they probably asked Jerry to do it, and he said no, but maybe Harry will. And Yeah. Or maybe he probably recommended about 10 other guys, and none of them would do it either. And then they said, all right, try Harry. <laughs> but see, okay, so those three uh, gigs... I'm not seeing a connection to your videos. Oh, right. Um, was the, if that was the angle of your question, no, not it wasn't. Uh, 
but I'm, I'm but but you know, you said I, I feel like I'm you know I'm not doing the traditional get respected by yeah. you know this group and then then they recommend you. You've it's it's kind of well at least two of those right there. I mean, you've got some two great Evan and Jerry, yeah. great musicians. Yeah. Ironically, Jerry's a bass player too. Dude. He plays, yeah, I mean, he's a wonderful drummer, but uh, <laughs> bass player too. No, they recommended, they're recommending their, I mean, maybe they, there was a video component that, that might have been a part of it, or maybe it was just their word of mouth. And well, and Evan played with you, so he knew. Yeah, Jerry, I got to know through every now and then, like all the Vic Firth drummers in Nashville will get together. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and at those things, I, I can't believe Jerry even remembers me from the last one of those because when I'm sitting with <laughs> those people I, I know my place I keep my mouth shut you know what I mean mm. while they tell all their legendary rock and roll stories and yeah. I just try to be a fly on the wall wow. I remember that that was last summer and I remember like I was enjoying it so much that we were sitting in this restaurant in Franklin and I drank too much water and from like an hour in, I'd have pissed so bad, but I could not stop listening to all the hilarious stuff they were saying that uh, I damn near just like ruptured my innards sitting there, not wanting to leave the table. Uh, but Jerry was there and being hilarious, and that's how we met. I wouldn't have expected him to remember me, but we've just kind of come become buddies. Also through through Minel, you know, there aren't that yeah. many Minel right. artists here, and so we... We look after each other too. That's cool. So it's building community. It's it's connecting the people one on one. I mean, the, I think that the videos prove themselves and pr- have proved their worth time and time again. But I think you're still going back to what has worked for decades. Uh, you know, you've you've pulled the curtain on that now and made me realize that a little more, like consciously than maybe I did before I sat here with you. But. Uh, don't stop making the videos. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> so where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not so Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. At what point do you decide, do you decide like that you're worthy of people's attention? Say like, hey, everybody, spend three minutes of your life watching me on the yeah, drums. Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that in some ways I'm glad I wasn't that self aware when I started. Um, I think uh, another thing I learned from like making a lot of videos really quickly, and, and we've be- said many, t- you do a great job. It's thank killer. You. It's very entertaining. Dude, thank you. So I, I, I'm not trying to unload something on you heavy. It's like, dude, who, why do you think this is worth our time? I feel you. Yeah, well, one, you know what? But I one, kind of am asking that question. <laughs> How did you come to that place? Yeah, man. Uh, and I, dude, I appreciate you saying that. And, it, you know, as you were asking me that, it did pop into my mind that even here in town, I do see videos pop up of... Um, uh, 
from folks that you wouldn't necessarily expect to necessarily be the voice of authority on like, hey man, subscribe to my video about how to get gigs and be the successful mm-hmm. drummer. And you kind of go, who are you? Yeah. Why are you the... Sure. Um, so I did try to, uh, I did try to lean towards a couple of things that gave me a little more okayness with talking into a camera and on the internet. Uh, one was I really tried to stick to things that I felt confident in. Mm-hmm. So it is not an accident that like none of my early videos like make any claims of here's how you get gigs or I, I, whatever else along those lines. Um, another is even now when I am a little more willing to say, here's how I deal with acoustic gigs and dude, I don't want to play a cajon, those kinds of things. Like yeah. I'm a couple of years in the trenches by now of making my living doing stuff like stuff like that. I don't mind theoretically um, thinking of myself as someone who at least has something to say about it. And then once I'm in that place, as I've jot down what I want to say into the camera, I just make sure to really lace it with disclaimers of like, um, uh, any little any little holes that might be exposed if I just got on there a little more hot headed and said like, "Hey, listen, everybody, stop what you're doing. Never play a co- you know what I mean. I don't mm-hmm, want to come off mm-hmm. as that type. Yeah. I really, um, I, I really try to lace it a little more with like, my experience of cajon has not been very joyful. I've also had experiences of bringing out these things yeah. that resemble drums a little more, and like I have managed to get away with that. Right. And here's what it sounds like. Yeah. You decide. I, I guess one, one last component to that that has made me like really fortunate with all this stuff is like once I kind of made that first video that gave me a voice and a small handful of people who wanted to listen to what I had to say. Yeah. Like, yeah. the wind has been blowing at my back a little more. If right. I put out a video right now, I live a way more pri- privileged life right now than I was living when I first started doing videos in 2014. If I make a video today and put it out, even if it is totally horrible, there are 60,000 people that trust me to not waste their time. Right. Um, and that makes, uh, that has helped me really settle into like, all right, these people embrace me uh, for me. Mm-hmm. I have that benefit from just like, uh, not trying to make myself into something that I'm not, not talk about things I don't know about and uh, speak my truth, you know, pursue yeah. my own truth. Um, enough, you know, enough years of doing that now, like I have a pile of however many people it is, 60,000 that, yeah. that trust that I'm going to keep doing that. And that helps me just keep trusting my gut. You know what I mean? No, you said speak my truth. Mm. And that's, I think that's a key component. This is what this is. This is me. You can choose to listen or not. This is my experience. This is my truth. If it resonates with you, great. If not, I understand. But and there's oftentimes you, and, and you also say this is what I feel like I know. This is what I'm. This is, these are my strengths. Um, I really appreciate you putting it that way. Um, that's, that's how I aim to come off is like, especially with that money video, what a sensitive subject, you know, it is, I, I lost sleep the couple, the, the couple of nights leading up to putting that video out. Cause I thought, dude, I hope nobody thinks I'm telling them how to live or like how much money is a lot of money or not a lot of money. Like, um, I really hope it comes off. Yeah. The way you just described of like, here's my experience, my truth. Um, maybe you can glean some parallels from that. I've heard you say that on this show before like oh 
you know, glean some parallels from my story if you want to. And whatever doesn't apply to you, hopefully you can leave that at the door. I interviewed Christian Pascal uh, last month. And I can't remember if it made it on the final show. He said, one thing I don't understand is people don't like to talk about money. Hmm. And I think that if people talk about money, it would be so much more helpful in deciding whether or not you want to get into this business. Your video about breaking down how much you were making, I thought, that there you go. One of the biggest things and that resonated with me was making uh, lifestyle choices. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man. You mean uh, <laughs> you mean the frozen vegetables and the yes. re- refusing to buy a bed frame and all that? Um, it's funny, you know. I like so after after that session Wednesday, it was so late that like all the ordinary establishments you eat at in Berry Hill uh, were closed. So we ended up at Applebee's where the, <laughs> between 10 oh, PM and midnight, the oh. appetizers are half off. And on my way out the door, this guy ran after me and stopped me. He said, Hey man, thank you for spreading the truth. You know, thanks for like spreading the good word. Um, and practicing, you know, he's like, and thanks for being the real you by being here at Crapplebee's. <laughs> was it the guy that worked there? No, no, some other guy that happened to be sitting in the restaurant, and yeah. he just stopped me on my way out. And um, he he had he had this vibe of like, wow, man, it's really you, and you really do live like a hood rat. You know what I mean? <laughs> you go uh, to Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> he called it Crapplebee's. I'll remember that for a long time. And yeah. as I was driving home from that, I thought like, man, you know, one thing I was kind of trying to say in that video is that like, in a lot of ways, I look at myself as a failure of of those like spiritual values now, because I do have a bed frame now. I don't sleep on a mattress on the floor anymore. You know what I mean? And, uh, and like I go to Crapplebee's, which by the way, costs a lot more than like the 99 cent vegetables that I had eaten for probably three or four years in a row getting up to this point. And like a lot of that, a lot of that resolve has deteriorated in me. And I, um, I, uh, I still, out of from kind of a minimalist perspective, I still eat the same thing every day, yeah. and it still costs less than five dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and on the road, I just eat like an anaconda or something. Try to store away a month's worth of nutrients like <laughs> in one sitting. Uh, yeah, I still I still have those habits, and I still do wear the same thing every day, and um, I keep my costs really low. And I I could not be a professional drummer at the at the level of the totem pole that I'm on, couldn't do it unless I lived as cheaply as I live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I still live in a house with a bunch of people to keep my costs down, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I've started contradict that message a little, and like I, I own a bed frame, I own a Nintendo Switch. That thing costs right. I, I know two hundred ninety nine dollars. Yes. Um, we have one in this house. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Do you play? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, that thing is. I'm busy. I'm busy making money to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you you know it's not cheap. That's what you're saying. Um, well, I mean, so uh, I, I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. I, I think that playing music 
and deciding to make music a big part of your life can mean many different things. All I wanted to do was play drums all the time. And so I thought, if that is my career, then I get to do it all the time. But you do have to make some, and, and I think that you're in that same spot. You're like, look, these other things don't matter to me, but what matters to me is playing. So if, if that's your focus, then you're going to have to make other sacrifices. Getting to where you want to be with your career and your life and your relationships and the comforts of life sometimes it just takes time. When you have the ability to spend your time doing that and you don't have other people relying on you, like little people relying on you, do it. Mm. Take all the time you can. Go out every night, meet people, play, practice. Just work that shit out. Mm -hmm. Because I remember I was like 22 and I met Dave Weckl. (laughs) And he said, practice now. Oh. Because (laughs) it, it... you won't have any time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I bet you practice all the time. Uh-huh. You know, because you're Dave Weckl. No, he did that when he was yeah. probably nine. Mm. Yeah, man. <laughs> oh, dude, that's such a through line with so many of my favorite drummers is how early they started in life and how much time they've kind of front-loaded it with. Uh, yeah. I, uh, and you know what? I, really, I dig what you're saying to me right now because it's a reminder of yeah again i want to use the word privilege how much privilege i i have and the fact that no one needs anything from me right now and so to this day i i still play drums every day man i log at least an hour of sitting on the drums yeah and i'm still actively trying to get better yeah part of it is like everybody i know here is a monster on the drums i'm like Mm -hmm. oh what happened to me why didn't i learn how to do this stuff and so i still have a lot of work to do but uh Dude, I resonate with what you're saying, man. If I am so fortunate to have kids one day, like, uh, I want to give my kids my time, man. I don't want to, like, keep living like an 18-year-old in a practice room in college Mm -hmm. or something. Uh, So, yeah, now's the time. For me and everybody else my age who who has no responsibilities, now is the time to put the work in for sure, man. Billy Ward was on the show, uh, actually, I, I think his episode came out last week. And did you know that he was the consultant on That Thing You Do? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Wow. What a, I mean, that movie is like at the center of my existence, man. Right. So he, was, he helped the, drummer, the actor learn to play, and he was on the set as a consultant to make sure that it all happened. And I think he played on the soundtrack as well. Dude, that's legendary to me, man. That's such hallowed ground. So Guy Patterson wasn't actually a... I mean, whoever played Guy Patterson wasn't actually a drummer? I, I, no, I don't, I don't know that for certain. But I know that Billy was brought in to either help him mm-hmm. bring him up to speed yeah. or start him from scratch. It's hard to say. You okay. hear stories of actors like learning to play something or do something they've never Ride done horses before. and yeah, right. <laughs> jump off of them and shit yeah that's yeah. so funny to me yeah <laughs> well you know what billy ward did a good job because those are faithful shots those that thing you do stuff so that's a big thing for you coming up that movie yeah i so i was playing saxophone i mean a, a lot of these are uninteresting details but i had other exposures to music mm-hmm 
which led me to just starting to hip to the drums being a cool thing. And the last straw, there are all sorts of components that led to that, but the last straw was watching Guy Patterson get the girl in that thing you do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, like, well, maybe this will get girls to like me. And that was, like, my final commitment to playing the drums, and I uh, worked harder at that than anything else in my life. (laughs) And did you have, like, important teachers or anything like that from that time? Um, They weren't drum teachers. So, uh, you know what? This is also girl-related. Like, I I started playing the saxophone because I wanted to be cool to this girl I was hitting on when I was, like, 12. She was saying she has a band with her friend. I was like, oh, I, I play an instrument, too. I play saxophone. Saxophones aren't even... It. What? What? Anyway, so... <laughs> so I tracked down the music teacher at my school and said, like, can you show me how to make this thing even make sound? Yeah. Which, like, if somebody doesn't tell you how to manipulate a reed on a woodwind instrument, it's like, that thing's not going to make any sound. You're just going to blow air through it, so... So he unlocked the magical powers of saxophone for me. And that was the first thing that I ever felt like I was good at. Like it clicked right away. Yeah. And so that's all I did like all day, every day. And I finally, I had something that was just for me. Mm. And so I worked, I was at one of those schools that was like fifth through 12th. You know what I mean? Like, uh, little kids all the way up to like high school kids. And so if you were good enough at soccer, even if you were in eighth grade, you could play on the varsity team. You know what I mean? Like oh, wow. that was one of the benefits. Of go- and so likewise, I, I just got good enough at saxophone that I started playing with like the high school kids and all that. This is in Birmingham. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you, d- you did thy research. <laughs> I don't admit to being from Alabama very openly. So, uh, Oh, Birmingham, uh, California, <laughs> Birmingham, England. That's it. Dude. Uh, so, we have this drummer who is like responsible for every good thing in my life. His name is Jared Taylor. He's a lawyer for Amazon now. Like he doesn't play drums for a living or anything, but he's in my mind he is still so much better at drums than I am. But he had the touch. He played all this cool, awesome stuff. So instead of um we were we were playing in like a big band format where, you know, sax section maybe has a sixteen bar long rest. Mm-hmm. And 32 bars later, I'd realize, like, oh, I never came back in. I've just been staring at the drummer. <laughs> and I'd go home and try to play these, what I eventually learned were, like, hurtas. He just, these rumbling, cool fills he would do. And, like, that's all I, he, he hooked me, man. And I eventually realized, like, his whole thing was Carter Beaufort, which yeah. then became my whole thing. Mm-hmm. I still go to, like, multiple Dave Matthews Van shows every year, which I know is not cool, but... That's what it is, man. Dude, that guy is still, and I know people. His heyday was kind of in the '90s, Carter. But and I know, <laughs> I know people may not realize this about him, but he is still. You're talking about like we're always still learning, right? Yeah. That guy is still. I've been to seventy something Dave Matthews Band shows, and every new time I go, he says something new, something I've never heard him say before on the drums. I'm like. This guy's in his 60s, you know what I mean? Yeah. What a cool living example no, of that. I, I don't think anyone would argue about that, dude. He's <laughs> What an amazing player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I got lucky to just be around. You were asking, all that came from you, <clears throat> you asking me, were there influential teachers? No, I just was very fortunate to be around a kid who was four or five years older than me who kicked total ass at drums. Mm-hmm. And if you... If you have the fortune of just being around someone who's great at music when you're little, it reminds me of like 
all those kids who knew each other who went on to found like Apple and Microsoft and all this stuff. It's like the influence that you take on from just being surrounded by people you can push the envelope with. That's kind of the benefit I had. I never studied the drums formally until college. Which was Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like? Uh, I had kind of a disjointed, interesting Berkeley experience. The first was that they had these little summer programs uh, that would last five weeks or so. If you're in high school, you can go simulate college for a summer up there. Right. Um, I don't know if they still do that, but I snuck out to Atlanta for their, they go on this world scholarship tour, they call it. Okay, you're hip to this. And uh, for a kid my age, like 15 or whatever, like the most you can hope for is like a little scholarship money to go to one of these summer things. And um, I went in 05 maybe when I turned 16. And they just kind of train you, if you're interested, um, they put you on the track of like, here's what you need to master to like have a shot at an actual college scholarship here. So I spent two summers up there, like Rocky Balboa running around with the, uh, you know, in the, in the Russian wilderness. Um, Oh, it's, yeah, it's cold, man. (laughs) Just, just playing 12 hours a day, um, working on these really specific things, thinking like I want a scholarship to Berkeley and I climbed all the way up to it. And the day, the, the president of the college presents at the very last day of this, uh, program in a ceremony and he hands you your scholarship and you shake hands and the moment we shook hands on stage was the moment I had this like quarter life crisis I guess you would call it of dude I'm more than just a drummer I don't want to spend the next four years of my life eight hours a day in a practice room because that feels like the rest of your life when you're 18 years old yeah. so I turned it down man and I went to some local school in Birmingham partly I will admit influenced by the fact that I was in like uh, quite a codependent relationship at that time. Yeah. And uh, I spun my wheels just like living a life that I look back on as like pretty meaningless and joyless hmm. when I was 18, 19 or so. And um, uh, it took... I That was probably a couple of years of walking away from music and I... Um, It took a lot of like it took a lot of dramatic turning points in my life to just wake up and realize like dude we control our own destinies man mm-hmm. we can do whatever we want so uh I ended up back at Berkeley probably I was probably like 21 by the time I actually started college at Berkeley okay. as an old man sitting around, <laughs> sitting around with 18 year olds that I didn't really like relate to and by then, I was already in this band that I mentioned to you. We had this song in the front. What was the name of the band? At that time, it was called Somebody and the Somethings. We had one song that we got away with called White Trash Love Song. Um, and uh, I'd be in school during the weekdays and then out on the road with them on the weekends. And by the time we signed our record deal, I had a choice. Drop out and see the world with my band, live my dream... Or, like, stay in school. And, like, I asked a few of my professors. I remember Rod Morgenstein saying, like, <laughs> he's like, you think we won't be here? Like, right. if the band doesn't work out, go, dude. Like, yeah. college is always going to exist as long as, like... But I'll be 22 then. <laughs> I'll be 23 then. I'll you know, be it's, so old. So, it's funny that you say that. When the band went down in flames... uh the four of us in the band went in our separate directions on pretty short notice. This all happened pretty quickly. 
and I think, yeah, I was 24 by the time this happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had to like call an audible basically like, all right, what am I going to do right now to just rebuild? And I had had a taste of living my life as a drummer. Yeah. And I knew like this is what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. I had also had such a sour experience with the band falling apart that I thought, I just want to be handed the chart, you know, handed the song, say, keep your mouth shut and play the drums. That's all I want to do. Sure. Now, little did I know that's like the definition of Nashville. I had no idea about this yeah, yet. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, where can I go to just like get that together? And There's a beauty. There is a beauty in that. Oh yeah. That was like, yeah. that was all I wanted at that point. So, um, I called, I called Berkeley and said for the third time, can I have my deal back? And they took me back in and I, I had like a year in Boston at age 24 to regroup, pull every phone number off every telephone pole I could, take every audition. A lot of them were in Los Angeles. One of them was in Nashville, mm. which I quickly did and forgot about. Um, and I just thought, whoever offers me a gig first, that's where I'm going to go and that's where I'm going to live my life. And the day I was signing a lease in Los Angeles... Uh, management here in Nashville called me and said, do you want to try a couple of weeks out on the road with us? And I said, you mean, and not pay like $2,000 to live in a closet and sit in traffic all day yeah, and like have enough room for my drums and maybe even have a driveway. Yes. Why? Yes. I will come to Nashville. Yeah, and, right. and so like overnight, basically I uh, dropped all my stuff into some basement here and like got on the bus and, uh, and that was it. Of course, you just asked me about Berkeley, and I said almost nothing about it other than that. No, it's. I mean, there's. It's so funny. Everybody that almost everybody that I've talked to who's gone to Berkeley, they're like, "Well, it was kind of. I would say I took a non-traditional approach. Oh yeah, you know, okay. just somebody. You know, they kind of. My understanding, not going having gone to Berkeley, is that it, it's what you make of it. Hmm. Oh, that's so well put. I could have saved us both a lot of time by just saying that. Because that's so true. That is like the headlining. Yeah. And isn't that just about anything? You know, it's what you put into it in in so many respects. Yeah, it feels especially true at Berkeley. You know what? And one you saying that reminds me of one really important detail to me and my experience there. And that is when I first went there, I had what you might consider your more average college mentality of, I'm here. People say this is where you're supposed to go to get good at music, so give it to me. Make me good. Yeah. You know, like put me in the Neo Matrix thing. I know Kung Fu machine. <laughs> uh, and one benefit it had is I was a lot I was around drummers who were doing unthinkable th- things that I still don't understand right now. Uh-huh. What was any of that? Uh and that, and I think like being in that environment maybe naturally like even if you don't necessarily give a huge shit about getting better. It will just, you know, your environment will shape you a little bit in that way. And that was nice. But then when I went and got my ass kicked in that band, like the music industry actually ripped me apart. Mm. Then when I came back, I knew what I wanted to know. I knew what to ask. I got so much more out of Berkeley the second round. Interesting. Uh, Because I had way more of a sense of self. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and also like I knew what questions I had, mm-hmm. like in the context of actual music and those guys can't answer those questions, but you have to leverage them for that. Right. And so the second time around, I noticed way more how many kids were just sitting there with the attitude that I had when I first went in, like, all right, teach me Kung Fu. I'll be right here mm-hmm. drinking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, dude, you you've said it very well. It's like if if you come in there with goals for yourself and questions, then yeah, man, that's a great place to get them answered. But you got to know what you want to get out of it. And I think sometimes there's a difference between going to school, learning to play, and then experiencing the business. And the 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 smart professors will bring in their alumni and say, hey, talk to my students about what you've experienced since you've left. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the second, it's like graduate school. It's the second stage of your existence and learning. When I first moved to Nashville, my dad's like, you ever think about going back to school? You know, he wasn't sure about the music thing. Mm-hmm. I said, Dad, I'm in school every single day. I'm learning so much. I'm getting my ass kicked Dude. constantly. Yeah. You know. That was another big stroke of fortune for me is that the last the last prof that I really bonded with at Berkeley was the old Blue Man Group drummer Steve Wilkes. Hmm. And this is not like a this is not one of the names that Berkeley necessarily uses to advertise their drum department. That doesn't have like a lot of fame cachet to it. Mm-hmm. But that is the Steve Wilkes is probably like one of the most zen drummers I've ever met and he's also like um he's a connector of people and his whole angle is like how to how to be a functional working drummer. Yeah. And so like we wouldn't really talk about polyrhythms in uh in his studio. We'd talk a lot more about where are you thinking of going? How are these auditions going? Oh, you might be going to Nashville. Well, you know what? My old student Caleb Gilbreth is starting to do well there. He's playing with a young Brett Eldridge. Mm-hmm call him when you get to town you know what i mean yeah and when you call like a fellow steve wilkes alumnus like they're gonna go to bat for you man because Mm -hmm. we've all like studied Mm -hmm. we've all kind of had the same guru and so like so many of the people that first like kind of took me under their wing here were just like ex-students of of steve yeah those are like kind of the most valuable things that i look back on with berkeley and think like oh man so many so many people just like paving the way for me you know what i mean right right all that stuff is important. I think there's a teaching style with some teachers that they're just sitting around and they're talking philosophy and you're like, where's the book? Where's the practice pad? And, but it, then it all comes full circle later down the road. You're like, Oh, that was so helpful. I'm so glad. Talking to Billy Ward, uh, his book that I cannot remember the name of, I read through that book so many times, and it was just a collection of articles and technically a blog, but Mm -hmm. on paper. But that helped me so much. It wasn't full of exercises and rudiments. It was just a conversation about listening and learning to perform and count a song in with confidence and practicing that in your in your private practice time so that when you're on the bandstand you you can do it with authority and the musicians around you don't care if you can play six tuplets around the kit but that count in was so perfect word the singer knew when to come in and they're like hire this guy again and then what do you do you work more you get more experience you get better at being a professional if you want to get better at doing six tuplets then Go do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's what I'm doing this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> I, speaking of professor, my old professor was on this show, Bob Brighthop. And he brought something up to me that uh, I never thought about. 
it's very rare that we think about something we want to do as a kid and we can make a career of it. Kind of like, when I grow up, I want to be Superman. No, you can't. When I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. You can, but it's But when I grow up, I want to be a musician. You can. You can. These things that you dream about when you're 12, 13, 14, you can still do them. And you can make a living out of it. So we, we, we have this really rare life. And it stems from the joy that it brings us. Music, drumming. But life happens. Real life happens. Shit happens. And it interrupts that flow. It interrupts those things. And I know that there have been things in your life that have interrupted this flow. You exude a lot of joy in what you do, especially watching the videos and stuff like that. So I know that's a big part. And when you play, there's that as well. I don't know if you want to speak to that, but... I'm trying to find a connection to a listener that has been dealt some traumatizing things and they want to get back on the path. They Mm -hmm. want to get back to living and finding the joy again. Yeah, man. I dig what you're asking. Uh, It's funny. So I'm thinking about your phrase, interrupt the flow. And what I realize is when I think of like, on paper, maybe the two biggest events that like stopped my life in its tracks, how sort of uh, integral they are to like the joy that I do have playing. Mm-hmm. The first is that I spent like the vast majority of my young life just suicidal, mm-hmm. which uh, I don't honestly now I don't think that's that uncommon. It's probably out, it's probably uncommon to outwardly identify that way, and it also like maybe it's it's a little less common for it to actually manifest the way it did in my life. You know, like um, when I was nineteen or so. In fact, I mentioned to you earlier I was spinning my wheels in the mud in uh, in Alabama instead of like going to Berkeley. Um, one of the left turns in there was like sort of the house of misery I had built for myself by like living for what I thought maybe other people's expectations of me were. Right. Maybe, yeah, eventually all that stuff sucked all the joy out of my life and I like lost any sense of the identity that I felt when I was mentioning earlier. Like, you know, when I started playing the saxophone, that was the first time in my life I thought, oh, I'm my own person. Look at this weird thing I do that nobody else can do. Yeah. Um, there's something really liberating about the day it all came to a head and I took a bunch of Benadryl, you know, four times the lethal dose or something. Mm. Um, uh, when, I, when I first woke up from that experience uh, in the hospital, you know, a week later, however long it took for that coma to wear off. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first woke up, I was mad that I had failed mm. to die. But... Uh, by the time I got out, like a week or two later or a month, I don't remember how long that went on, you know, like, cause when you do something like that, they're going to, they're going to chain you to a hospital bed for right. a, a while, you know? Um, but, uh, by the time I got out and walked out of the door of that building and it had survived, like 
which I didn't deserve, by the way. You know, like I don't deserve to be here right now. To, uh, but to luck into surviving and walk out and realize, like, all right, nothing that was in place in my life before I did this is here now. Like, um, if I just imagine, if I imagine I'm dead right now and this had actually like gone the way I planned it, well, then other people's expectations don't really matter so much do they or like how well I'm doing in some school I don't care about like that doesn't matter either does it a lot of this stuff is arbitrary like more so than I realized before I decided like what if I just end my own life and there was something really liberating about coming out on the other side of that and realizing like all right how does all this stuff compare to death itself like none of it matters dude so why don't I um why don't I just rebuild my life with bricks that I care about, like with, with pieces that I care about. Why don't I play, why don't I play this time around? Like, um, do you feel like it was a a second chance to reevaluate? Yeah, man. Um, and so like, that's when I got a lot more aggressive about like, let me play to me instead of playing to others. Let me, um, that's when I started playing music again, for example. And that's what led to that band. Yeah. That was like the first phase of my life of doing things for right now, doing things for this feels right at the moment. Yeah. And I don't, you know, you can't start a band and like really be able to guarantee anybody where any of that stuff's going to go. And I don't think I did it from the perspective that I wanted fame and fortune. I did it from the perspective that like, oh, I find meaning in this. It's like a lot easier to get out of bed because I'm excited to like work on this crap. Right. Um, so... It took like destroying the whole house kind of and then and then rebuilding uh-huh. from scratch. And so interruption of flow is one way to yeah, to describe that. But I like when I think back on that stuff now, like I'm I'm the same guy right this second that I was when I walked out of that hospital for the first time. Like the life that I've that have kind of put together from but maybe myself. you were a different person before that. Uh you're saying there wasn't a there was a you're like this was the path I was on, but mm-hmm. it's not the right path for me. Is yeah. That what you're saying or um, yeah, let me let me think about that. I uh, if we think of uh, too many metaphors. I know, man, <laughs> and I'm I'm so I'm so weak with that stuff. But yeah, like to to put it simply, I've lived two lives. I've lived two totally unrelated lives. The first was like the first 19 years of my life. Mm-hmm. The intermission of that show was me taking all those pills. And then here I am in Act Two right now. Like uh, mm-hmm. here I am in my like a totally second life unto itself. It felt like the day I walked out of that hospital feels like the first day of my current life. Of like, mm-hmm. all right, all the old rules don't apply. You can truly, assuming you're willing to live up, I mean, uh, own up to it. You can truly like every single day make whatever choices you you want to make. That feels so woven into like the money video that we've yeah. talked about a little yeah. earlier. Like. Yeah. Dude, you know, until I was 19, I like I wouldn't have ever questioned whether we need a bed frame or not. Of course we need one. We're civilized people, you know what I mean? Like the version of me that came out of that hospital is the version that like doesn't mind sleeping on a doesn't I I don't mind identifying my own priorities even if they don't resonate with like the entire culture I was raised in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Finally getting to put all that stuff behind me and fire all that stuff. So that feels really integral to all the joy I feel in what I do now. Yeah. Um, 
So maybe that question it wasn't didn't have a, an answer related to you, but it was more the, the for the listener to say you you are to say to them like it's important to figure out what where your priorities lie and arrange things so that you find uh, what works best for you. Mm-hmm. Sharing my suicidal experiences has connected me with a lot of people who identify with those things in their own lives. I know I'm not alone in that camp, but yeah. I don't I don't know how much of my story like applies to other people that feel that way at some point in their lives and so like I don't stretch too hard to like try and apply my experiences to them. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the really the reason I was most compelled to share that stuff online was um mm. watching the people who uh, who deal with suicide indirectly, say they lose a loved one to suicide. Mm-hmm. Like those are the people I wanted to talk to a little more and just say like, Hey man, all of us, you know, if we lose a loved one to suicide, for example, like we can all come up with a million reasons why it's our fault that this guy killed himself. Mm-hmm. But please let yourself off the hook. That was my message as someone who had like attempted suicide on my own. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have wanted anybody to blame themselves for that shit, man. Like, that was just something I wanted to do for me. So yeah, the video was really a message to people who had themselves on the hook for, Mm -hmm. Oh man, what could I have? Not that we, I mean, I love the idea that, uh, we all ought to look after each other and all that, but, um, those, those aren't mutually exclusive ideas. Right. Gosh, what a pile of spaghetti. What a ramble. Um, it sounds like you've embraced this opportunity to, ha- to, to speak to something that a perspective that could be helpful to many other people. Yeah, man. You know what? And you've reminded me what you were asking me about in the first place. Like, I can at least say this. Um, if nothing else, anybody who's been there before can at least extract from my story like, oh, all right, I'm not the only person to, to feel this way before. Yeah. Like, And that... That goes a long way. Just not feeling alone with that stuff. That doesn't solve the whole thing. But we were talking about this earlier, like imagining like what gives you the right to make a video or act like you're an expert on something, right? Mm -hmm. This is one I'm especially sensitive to not act like an expert on. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I often tell myself that has helped me a lot in my own journey with that stuff. Again, I'm not a psychologist, Mm -hmm. just a dude trying to like keep myself saying, you know, uh, one thing that I've now that I've had the opportunity to live like a few more moons since then, one thing I've noticed is uh, I've never able to even fathom how much can change over, say, like a period of five years. Mm-hmm. Pick any five year period in my own life or maybe in your own life, like measure from January of 2013 to January of 2018. Mm-hmm. Look at the massive, like, variables that have like changed hugely over that period of time. All right. Now imagine your life is not worth living right now. Again, this is me talking to myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I say to Harry, Harry, imagine, um, imagine that nothing in your life is worth like living for right now. Like, okay. Apply that little five year lens. Can you find some way to hang on for five years? Like life can, life can vary so widely that I have no idea what things are going to be like for me five years from now or whatever scale you want to use. And like, I guess the attitude I have now is like, if there's even a chance that like there's something worth living for like five years from now, like I can find a way to hang on until then. Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for anybody else and like claim that it's so easy for anybody else to do that. But like, 
yeah, man, I can find five years worth of Nintendo Switch games or something and distract myself. Obviously, those things take work, but... I think as creative people, there's a lot more emotion and there's a lot more sensitivity that we either choose to expose the world to or we hide it or we find productive or destructive ways to express ourselves. I think that you are very right. There's a lot more people that relate to what you're talking about. Luckily, we're talking more about it these days than we were many decades ago. And and what I was trying to do and trying to learn more about you is how do we relate to listeners, your experience, who want to do more in this business that can be soul-crushing? We invest so much in our music. It's not, we're not making widgets here. I know those that want to get into this or that want to continue to do this. What has worked for you to get through some of these things to get back to making music. Yeah, man. Dude, I, I, yeah, I love the way you're putting that. So whatever the worst thing that's ever happened to you is, like that is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You know what I'm saying? And like, I, I do kind of have this belief that... Uh, and I think age plays a factor in that too. Because I think that there is a period of time, you know, roughly 15 to 25, that is a rough time for people. Hell yeah. I, <laughs> um, I yeah, man, yeah. Uh, certainly those, those were the most emotionally volatile times in my life. Yeah. You know, even that stuff, uh, be it, be it hormone related or, or in, indirectly that, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's all those things, man. Yeah. Not to mention just like the butterfly effect of like, if you're constantly making more volatile decisions, which I was, well, that can bring more volatile consequences too, can it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, whatever the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody, well, that's the worst thing that's happened to you. So that makes it, in my mind, equally serious as the worst thing that's as whatever's happened to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I do believe that. Uh, so I don't want to talk in, about I don't want to talk about these things just for the sake of exposing anything about you. I feel you. you. I want, I, want, I want to make sure that people can relate to yeah. and, and say, well, listen, this is something that Harry's dealt with. And are you there too? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose my angle in saying all that is like, all of us, man, all of us are going to have like yeah. massive bummers in our lives, dude. Yeah. Even if those things have different names. Mm-hmm. Like, music is what saved me from all that stuff. I have had to learn to some degree. Uh, I would say the biggest factor of my happiness that I'm working on right now as it relates to all this stuff is trying to separate my sense of self-worth from the gig that I have. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, one one aspect of this music, these musical pursuits that we're on that you mentioned is that, like, we're going to get kicked to the curb over and over again. We're going to finally get on some gig and be like, dude, I'm the guy. Look, I have a drum tech. I don't set up my own shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And then like, I can't like, <laughs> I've, I've lost, 
I've lost and gained that kind of momentum like every year since I've moved here, dude. Mm-hmm. And it's the end of the world every single time. Well, I'll put it this way. It's felt like the end of the world every single time, yeah. but less so and less so each time. You know right. what I mean? Right. And you also mentioned earlier how many of these auditions I've struck out at. Like, dude, in 2017, I think I did at least five auditions that each one was like the opportunity to change my life if my self-worth comes from what gig I have. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and some of them, man, like, I've put a lot of pressure on myself. And, uh, you know, I look back and I'm like grateful I did it and that I... Sure. And the guys who are playing, you know, some of the guys who beat me on these things are dudes that have sat right here and been on your show mm-hmm. and deserved it more than than me. And uh, that has made me better at the drums. I am a lot better at drums right now from that perspective than I was when I first walked into that audition, say, last January. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Jared Neal. Why? I don't... Uh, you know what? I it just This thought just popped into my head. that This strikes me as one of those... Um, What's the word for it? Things you shouldn't talk about, like money or something? Taboo. Yeah, taboo. That was the word. So I don't know why it's like not okay to talk about who we auditioned for. So I'm going to experiment with you right now. Sure. And just tell you that like one that, one that was really meaningful to me was going out for Hunter Hayes last year. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the reasons for that is like when my band first signed at at Warner, the day we were signing the deal, they were playing Hunter's storm warning video. He was also Atlantic, you know? So like the day we signed was the day they released his first single. And I didn't know anything about any country music. I didn't live in Nashville yet. And, uh, (laughs) we, we, uh, I just thought, who is this virtuoso kid? I was so blown away by him and actually became a fan as someone who's not even a fan of country music. And then the first show I went to when I moved to Nashville was Hunter on the CMT tour at the Ryman and uh, got to see like how musical he really is on stage and know, like the kind of mind he has. And I'd done a bunch of touring opening for him and all that. And so by the time I was actually playing with them in this rehearsal studio, I was like, dude, this is the dream, man. This is the band I belong with. And uh, and Jared Neal went in there and wiped the floor with everybody. And he's on that gig now, and he sounds so good playing with them. It's like, yeah. now that I've seen him yeah. play with Hunter, I'm like, of course he's the drummer for Hunter. Mm. He's listened to this. And I didn't have that in me, man. Um, I played a lot more like a robot then. And it was so funny at the end of that audition. Um, I had played a number of more regimented tunes, but they sent me one the night before. Like, hey, man, this is part of the gig. Learn this thing that's never been released and we're going to play it tomorrow. And at the end, like right before we played it, they threw me this curveball. Like we're going to turn the click off at the end. Let's just see where it goes. Let's jam. And I'm like, jam. I haven't jammed since I was 13. What do you mean? Right. Jam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And those dudes can stretch out and do it. So can Jared. And I was in there like, where's the click? How many bars do you want me to play? You know what I mean? Like yeah. I went in there and played like a robot. And so I deserved the beating I got, but man, I put a lot of pressure on myself, of course, going through all that stuff. And cause you think like, you have this opportunity on your hands to like finally be the, among the likes of those kinds of people and not having to play for 30 artists at a time. You know what I mean? And like, I went through that over and over yeah. last year and like every time I struck out, it was like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if, uh, I wonder if this is like the only way through it is through it kind of things where it's like, Hey man, here's the good news. The more you get your ass beat <laughs> by this stuff, yeah. 
the more it's yeah. like, yeah, that doesn't hurt as much. I'm kind of used to this. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I, there's so much from that, dude. I, I love that. I love that story because uh, you've learned not to invest that much, but to, to take those experiences and learn from it. And people say to me, they're like, how long have you been playing drums? Uh, this is kind of related, but people say, how long have you been playing drums? I'm like, I don't even want to tell you anymore because I should be freaking <laughs> Vinnie Caliuta with all the good and bad experiences that I've had. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really imp- – my point is is, is – y- you have to not. I mean, yeah, it sucks. It 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 makes you feel like shit. But get over it. Learn from that, and you just you, you build upon that experience. I, I've recently worked with some wonderful musicians, super talented. You could just tell, so talented. But they're at a place in their life and an age where they just couldn't get the job done on the stage for the gig. And it had nothing to do with their talent. It just came from experience. And 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 part of me was just like, I was kind of angry that they didn't deliver. But then part of me was like, well, I just have that time. I have that experience. I have, and they're much better musician at, that, at this age right now than I was at that age. So I'm going to cut them some slack. And when they're my age or when they have this much experience, they're going to be insane. And they're going to be doing 10 times as much as I'm doing now. But for right now, I'm not going to call you again. Right on. Go get that experience, then come back and see me. And I hope to God you'll use me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know. Word. When you were interviewing... The drummer for Fallout Boy. I don't remember his name. Yeah, Andy Hurley. Okay, Andy Hurley. Uh, from the Hurley He Boy. No. <laughs> Why, of course. <laughs> Let the man clean your house. <laughs> uh, Chris Farley reference. <laughs> so, you asked him. I thought it was a really amazing question. Like, do you practice? Do you? Are you happy with where you're at? He's like, I don't really practice anymore. I kind of did all that stuff. He's got an amazing gig, amazing history, you know, mega successful band, all that good stuff. So we kind of accept that answer. And I think I hear that from time to time. I've heard that in the past of drummers saying, well, I, you know, I don't really practice anymore. I just do my thing. I kind of want to know your take on all this stuff. Uh, I think I know the answer, but. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, and I think there's pros and cons to both these perspectives. But um, what's your reaction to, to to that kind of thing? Do you right feel on. like you're going to get to a place where you're going to be like, ah, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> Dude, I'm really glad you asked me that. Um, I, I thought about that answer for so long, especially... And by the way, I got reactions to that answer, too. Like, when, oh, yeah. you know... Um, I, is this I sh- one of them? Um, <laughs> is this one of the reactions? Uh, right now? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm I'm really glad you brought it up because here's what I want to say about Andy. In the context of my channel, especially, it is easy to think of him as a drummer. Andy Hurley is a drummer. Um, now that I know him as well as I do, I have realized that uh, Andy is one of the greatest living examples of 
separating your sense of self-worth from the gig, like we were talking about a second ago. Yeah. The reason he is a happy person has nothing to do with Fallout Boy. It has nothing to do with like the diamond records that they have. Like he lives a life totally independently of being in that band. He's really into like veganism, straight edge, CrossFit, all these things that he finds community and meaning in. And like that's the stuff he lives for. Mm-hmm. And you've had a few drummers on this show say similar things too. Yep. The the rest of it, I won't call it a day job, but like, cause, uh, but the the rest of it, like, he is an artist in Fallout Boy. He is a musician among them. He is a. Uh, if you look at his life before he was in that band, yes, functionally speaking, he was a drummer. But more importantly, he was a member of what you would call like that hardcore or emo scene. He was a member of that community. He was going out to all those shows, cheering on all the other bands. And, like, yeah, his job happened to be drummer. But he, like, he is a member of Fall Out Boy. Okay, so when you think about what that entails, um, it is so beyond the context of, like, drum licks or sitting at drums. And I, the way his answer felt to me is, can he can he speak fallout boys truth on the drums from a technical perspective by moving his hands around? Yes, he can. And that's, what's important to him mm-hmm. when you put that in like the context of his goals as a human being, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Now those are different from my goals as a drummer, but like you were saying a second ago, um, I don't, I don't even apply these black and white concepts of, of right and wrong to any of that stuff. And I can tell you, you don't either. Um, so it doesn't really affect my goals for myself as a drummer because I have so much more expression that I'm trying to still get in touch with on the instrument. In fact, I'm like in a renaissance right now of like, it feels like I'm 15 again. I'm like rapidly, yeah. I'm rapidly consuming drums finally again. And it came from this slump that I spent like probably all of 2017. In. You know what? It's funny how all these stories are connecting probably the first moment of that awakening came from walking out of that hunter audition and realizing like, wait, there are real musicians who like play big shows. I thought it was either you can be a real musician and suffer in some jazz club in New York, or you can, you can like destroy your soul and go play these huge gigs at the expense of like your own expression or whatever. I thought that those were mutually exclusive things. Right. And what I found so inspirational about that audition is like, no way, man. Um, the guys who play at that level, and this applies to like, pick any drummer you've had on this show. Like, the, I think the last episode I listened to was Tracy Broussard. Like, mm-hmm. that dude can play the drums, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know what? Rich gets this, uh, in the drummer world outside of Nashville, when people bring him up to me, they're like, Look at this guy. Why is he so famous for playing like two and four or whatever? I'm like, dude, Rich, Rich Redmond Rich yeah. could eat your lunch on the drums. Man, that guy like yeah. is so good at drums. And I know people don't like, you can't necessarily see the whole scope of that when he's sitting up there playing with Jason Aldean. Yeah. Although even then, like there are lots of stuff you see him do with Aldean. That's like, if you really pay attention, it's like, man, that guy is carrying uh, a lot on yeah. the drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, um, oh, but a lot of realizing how consistently, like, you don't get to that level unless you are fantastic at drumming. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any slouches at that level. And so, c- going to a lot of these auditions and getting beaten around like that, like, 
that's helped me wake up to that a lot. So, um, it's been such a big project for me lately to, and these work in tandem, find the joy in music again mm-hmm. and work on it, man. Yeah. Uh, so I'm playing for a minimum of an hour every day. And I'm also, here's the other important piece that is like, maybe this sounds really simple, but it's been a revelation for me this year. My goals on the drums, it, this all stemmed from thinking like just losing sleep a lot of nights over the last year thinking, why was I constantly getting better at the drums when I was 15? Mm-hmm. Why was I constantly hungry to play? And now when I sit at the drums, I'm like, all right, what do I want to do? I probably have to learn the form of a couple of these songs or something, but that's not work. I mean, that's not, that's not working on drumming. Right. Right. Um, right. So where can I get this? What's the difference? Where can I get this voracious energy back from? And the reason was when I was 15, I was listening to music that blew my mind. I was listening to music that made me say, what is he doing right. and how can I do it? So you know what I've started doing this year, Matt, is listening to music that I like again. Yes. I haven't done that in a while, my man. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm on Spotify Discover Weekly every week now, mm-hmm. and I, I take notes on what I like, and I follow down those rabbit holes. So I just I just discovered the struts last week. Cool. Uh, and... I really love what they're doing. You know, a lot of those details don't matter. So, but those are that's the renaissance for me right now. Is I'm playing drums every day and I'm listening to music that inspires me. And so, like, dude, that's fuel for life stuff. Like you were saying earlier, like I can't imagine not still feeling that way when I'm an old man and can barely pick up drumsticks. You know what I mean? You need to take time to listen for for so many reasons. Just just for, for perspective, for just getting your ears in tune, for the and, and the sheer joy of it. And and I know that when I'm listening to a lot of music that week, somehow my playing is just a little bit better, groovier, musical. When I'm listening to news all week, it's it's by rote. It's I'm going through the motions. You know, it's it's robotic. It's that thing that you're, you know. And uh, you're so right, man. Where can people find find you? Uh, I live on YouTube pretty deliberately. Like, that's the only... I don't participate in the minute-to-minute social mediating. I participate in the slightly longer form. So do you, are you not on Instagram? or? I have handles on there because I've, I've had problems with, I guess, squatters, as you call them, like... Um, and I won't, I won't bring anybody <laughs> up specifically because some of these people are well-meaning, but I, I got to a point where people were buying, you know, harrymyrie.net and making, all right, that was a little too specific because <laughs> that guy, that guy, very well-meaning. Yeah. Um, but I realized like, okay, I, I want to like at least own or control those properties. So yeah, if you... If you go to me on Instagram, there's 30 seconds of me playing the drums and it says, go to YouTube. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Uh, and you, and, on, and there's a list of people that you play. And you played with my mom, is that right? You play drums with my mom? Yeah, if down? you zoom in really you closely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, I asked her about that. You, know <laughs> you really did your research. If you got all the way down to that part of my yeah, resume. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. That's, that little Easter egg is, is in there just for the people like you who care. <laughs> your window of five years, where do you see things happening in the next five years? 
I love that. So it's really interesting that you asked me that. I moved here almost to the day five years ago right now. It's a five-year town, man. In the, <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah. Um, the good old boys say that. All right. Maybe one day we will be the good old boys. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, so I, uh, the deal I made with myself when I first moved here is five years, no questions, say yes to every gig that you can do. Uh-huh. Okay, so that contract ends right now. So I'm actually next week, the we week after. Just under the radar. Yeah. Just under the line. Yeah. You come do this podcast? Yes. <laughs> do that. But I made a deal with myself. <sighs> a month later, man. <laughs> uh, so uh, in two weeks, I'm going to Alaska. Yes. To uh, shake up my surroundings and really meditate on the question you're asking me. And one thing, I don't want to. I don't want to make any assumptions about the conclusions that I'm going to come to because maybe I'll walk out and say like, all right, I'm going to be a chef now. No more drums. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. This, this, my gut is telling me that, um, I am going to shift some of my priorities. I'm not going to say yes quite as often. I don't need, so this was my fifth year in a row of breaking a hundred something shows on the road. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't mind continuing to do the road, but I'm not going to just keep doing it for doing it sake. I've seen Iowa, the cornfields of Iowa enough times at this point that yeah. if I go out there anymore, that's fine. I just want it to have meaning. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, I, uh, I, I want to play something, play music that means something to me out there. So I'm not necessarily going to ride the van for $100 out there anymore. I'm glad that I did for five years straight. But, uh, so I also think, uh, I think I'm going to lean a little harder into trying to make more videos because I feel I actually feel more impact there than I do even some of these amphitheaters that you play the 20,000 people that you played for don't remember you the next day mm-hmm. that's okay that's not necessarily the the point um but uh I I probably will shift to playing fewer shows and I naturally like started playing more sessions and showcases here and so I I am in town a little more now but um I'm just now getting to the point I'm just now waking up to like what it feels like to pursue truth in my videos. Making that one about endorsements was like a, a step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Making the one about money, making this thing about recording sessions has been another one. And so, like, um, I would imagine I, I'd like I'd like to put a lot more weight into that in the next couple of years. Um, and the, any other secret plans I have, like, I'm not willing to say on the mic right now. I'll tell you when we turn it off. Um, but uh, but when it happens, you'll keep all of us posted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, but you know what? Like, not. the simple... Yes, yes, totally. And the simple answer for now is I am infinitely the only... I'm, I'm infinitely grateful for people to subscribe to what's going on on YouTube if they... I don't want anybody there who doesn't want to be there, but... Um, just watch my stuff for free on YouTube, man, and I'm forever grateful. This has been fun, man. Oh. It's nice to meet you. Likewise. Yeah. The legend, finally. <laughs> thanks, Harry. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, man. My thanks goes to Charles Singula for bringing Harry's YouTube page to my attention. If you haven't checked these videos out that Harry's been producing, I can't recommend them enough. Harry does such a great job. They're informative. Uh, they're hilarious. Uh, very entertaining. He does a great job, and he sets the bar very high if you are interested in creating YouTube page. Um, 
I don't know. Go check out Harry's. He he, he just does a great job. Uh, I, I apologize to Harry for uh, not knowing how to take a compliment. He was very kind in his words about this podcast, and uh, I don't know. I don't feel like I, I, I thanked him enough for being a listener and, and just, I don't know, knowing how to take a compliment. Uh, I- anyways, um, also, I, I, I can't say enough for Harry um, just being able to open up and discuss his close call with suicide and the willingness to share it with us. I find it rather serendipitous that the week that we're recording and editing this episode, two suicides made the news this week with the loss of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Depression and suicide is on the rise. I think we all are seeing that. And I implore you to find help in any way you can if you are struggling. Many thanks goes to Mike Jackson for all his technical assistance, and stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.